Um, we're now officially Victorians. They made us change our driving, our car registration numbers, so now we struggle to find our cars when we park them somewhere. They changed our driving licenses so we're not the people we used to be, and they've put us on the Electoral Commission. So now we have to revolt in the People's Republic, and um, I'm really nervous about that. My family is wonderful. I have a son, Matthew. He's 30-something. He has just um, graduated from Moreland College with theology, book two. Brightest, brightest guy I know. He has a Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, obviously, which he can read, and a Greek understands New Testament Greek, which I'm really envious of because my language skills are something below zero. I have a daughter, Catherine, who's the reason we're here, because she had a son, and I have a grandson who was nine months old yesterday. Catherine is a social worker. She is one of the best counselors I've ever known. She's got a great sense of humor, and she had the misfortune to take after her father in her life, which you'll find out in a little bit of time. When I was about 28, I decided I was getting a bit old, and I was in a church, big church, lots of young people, lots of young women. I decided I needed a wife, so I started something called Harry's Helpline, which is a bit like hire a hubby. You know, I'd go around and help young women do things. Like decorate, you know, I say, do things, nice things. The only person who took me up on that was Liz, my wife. And um, we, we started going out in about November. We got engaged at Christmas and we were married in March. And that was 40 plus years ago. I have to say about my wife, she is an amazing person. She has an amazing gift to come alongside people and love them and show them empathy for a long period of time. I'm really good at it for a weekend or for a couple of hours while I'm ministering to them. Forget the long-term stuff, that's just not what I do, but my wife is really, really good at it. And she's also exceptionally long-suffering. She's put up with me for 40 years plus, and I've heard that I'm not the easiest person to live with or work with, so thank you. Oh. Well, that's not a very good music stand, is it? <laughs> Can we get a better music stand next week? <laughs> my, I just want to start by saying that my story is unusual. But let me say it is no, of no more value than yours and no less value than yours. One of the things that we struggle with is that we, we sometimes undervalue our stories so we're afraid to share them. But our stories are our testimonies. And our testimonies create the space for God to do similar things. So I'm going to tell you my story. I have to say this has been an experience for me because I'm not a reflective person. I kept a journal for a week once when I went to Thailand. And then I had another journal which I filled the first page in and then totally lost interest in it. So I have no record of my life whatsoever. The one thing I regret is I didn't journal the prophecies and the words that God has given me over the years, because I think I would have found that useful. Um, so do that, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I have to say that, phrase, that verse, is 130,000% true in my life. When I, I took the time this last week to reflect on my life, 
I was gobsmacked at the amount of grace and favor that God has poured into my life in so many situations. Almost since the day I was born, long before I became a Christian, or at least 17 years before I became a Christian. I was going to tell you stories about my childhood and the horrible creature I was growing up. But then I thought that would probably bore you after a while. So I decided to sum it up, and Father put it on my heart to sum it up in a sentence. And that sentence is that I am amazed that I made it to 17 years old without doing myself serious injury, killing myself, or having a criminal record. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples of that. By the time I was 10 years old, I had three semi-serious run-ins with the police. They couldn't do anything about it because I was under the age of whatever it is that you have to be the age of to go to court and get a criminal record. Um, I was done for housebreaking, raiding orchards, shoplifting, and this is before I'm 10. I was a horrible child. My dad worked in England and we lived in Scotland because of the economic situations. I didn't have a dad and I was really too much for my mum to handle. We were street kids. At five years old, we'd get up, we'd get our bikes out, and we'd be out in the streets. And we'd come home from school, and we'd be out in the streets. And we would get into all kinds of trouble that you wouldn't possibly imagine. And then, between the, then at the age of 10, they took me out of Scotland and me to England. How could they do that? I mean, that is unforgivable. That was a hard experience. I got beaten up regularly because I spoke differently. And my... Um, Tendency to do unhealthy things continues. A couple of examples. One of our favorite games, this, you know, we were 12, 13 years old at the time, was to chase each other around the town with an air rifle. I remember there was a factory next door to our house, and I remember running across the wall of the factory with a 40-foot drop on one side, an 8-foot drop on the other side to a glass roof, to Air, air, air rifle pellets whizzing past my head. Now, you weren't supposed to aim at the head, but it was just, you know. On another occasion, me and my mate, we found a box of bullets in the shed. So we were like, this looks fun. So we took the bullets and we went out and we used to go down to the railway line and we put pennies on the railway line and they come out three times the size when the train ran over them. So we thought, we'll try this with bullets. So we, we put bullets on the railway line, and that was a waste of time, because the trains made too much noise. You couldn't hear anything. So we forget that. Then we found a, a bench in the park. Don't do this at home, by the way. We found a bench in the park, concrete bench, and we used to put the bullets on it and hit them with a hammer. That was much better fun. And then we got bored doing that, so we lit a fire. <laughs> And we threw a handful of boots in, and we waited till they got off. I, I managed to get a piece of cartridge in my leg. It came out the next day in the maths lesson, which was really good. I had my first cigarette when I was eight years old, and smoking was an issue for me for quite a long time. My, there was never any alcohol in my home, but we used to go to other people's homes, and we would sneak little tots of whiskey. Um, this is when I'm eight or nine, from you know, wherever they thought they were hiding it. 
Once I sneaked a tot of bleach, that didn't go down well at all. At the age of, I, well, the one thing that probably saved me from getting into serious trouble as a teenager is my dad got me a job in the local service station and I went and served petrol. Three shillings and sixpence a gallon. That's about 10 cents a litre. It seems to have gone up a bit since then. Um, and I, I learned to drive at the age of 12 and I was driving on the, age, on the roads at the age of 13. Um, fortunately, I never got caught. I got a motorbike at the age of 14, stripped it down, and then I became very loosely associated with a biker gang, and that wasn't terribly healthy either. Well, I, I, I didn't get on with my dad. I didn't get on with my mum. I was a real pain in the chest. And, um, so they, and I hated school. School was the worst place on earth. In the days I went to primary school, corporal punishment was the go. And every single day except Fridays, I would end up with the ruler at least once a day where they whacked it across your hands. This is from the age of five to nine or ten. It got worse in secondary school. And my education was ruined by it. Learning was not a good experience for me. I can't remember where I'm going with that. Anyway, we'll move on. I left home at 16. My parents moved back to Scotland a little while after I left home, and I went to London. I joined British Airways Aircraft Engineer. I went home at 17 for Christmas and got absolutely drunk as a lord. I didn't know lords got drunk, but that's a good phrase. Uh, so mad that it took me three days to recover, and my mum was surprised she didn't have to take me to hospital for alcohol poisoning. I went back to London, back to the apprenticeship, and um, they'd, they'd split us into groups of 12. And in our group of 12, there was a Christian with big, thick glasses and a really funny haircut. And one of my greatest pleasures was to wind him up so much that he'd lose his temper and come at me with a hammer. Um, I really wasn't a nice person, I tell you. And then there was this other guy there, his name was Martin. And Martin came over one day, I, I had the motorbike, I had a girlfriend in Manchester which was kind of declining. I had one in Oxford which was kind of taking off. It was February, it was minus degrees, and I'd get so cold riding my bike, I'd have to hook my hands off the handlebar to pull the brake on. And you know, you'd know, get home and cold would radiate out of you for hours. It was horrible. And this guy comes up to me and he says, um, Harry, we've got a non-Christian girl at our youth group looking for a non-Christian boyfriend. I had the magic word, girl. I had no context for Christian and non-Christian and all the rest of it. I had been to Sunday school as a very young child at Presbyterian Church of Scotland one. They never told me Jesus was alive. At the age of eight, I discovered Santa Claus wasn't real. I was a slow developer. And um, I put Jesus in the same bucket. I became an agnostic atheist who thought if there was heaven, I'd get there. No idea how, but you know. So I, I had no concept. I was completely more or less unchurched, except I knew some of the stories. So this guy comes up and says, you know, come on to a youth group. So I said, well, okay. Friday night, rolled down to this youth group, Baptist church. 15, 20 young people there, all kind of happy. And this non-Christian girl didn't turn up. I was really disappointed. I remember the sinking feeling in my heart. 
as she didn't turn up. Her sister said, nope, she's not coming, that was it. We played badminton and table tennis for a couple of hours, and, and then David, who actually later became my best friend, this is the first time I met all these people, said, oh, we're going up to the little room now, do you want to come with us? I said, sure, we'll go play board games. So we went down to the back of the church hall, up to the little room, they sat in a circle, and they had a prayer meeting. Man. First time in my life I'd heard people pray as if they meant it. They prayed with emotion. They prayed with love. And I'm thinking, they think these guys are weird. I need to get out of here. So went downstairs, and this pretty blonde girl came up to me and said, um, there are seven of us being baptized on Sunday evening. Would you like to come along? We're being baptized by full immersion. And I said, what's full immersion? And they said, they, they dunk us under the water. Oh, I'll, I'll come. That sounds interesting. The weekend was ruined anyway. It was too late to go to Manchester or Oxford, so might as well go along. I went along. Baptist, him, him thingy, prayer, him, prayer, sandwich, service. Um, not very interesting. Preacher preached. Boring. They, they baptized the kids. They gave little testimonies as they went in. Interesting. I didn't really pay a lot of attention to anything. And, the, you know, the priests are there with these bellies and these galoshes on, you know, his fishing kit. And where's the rod? And then right at the end of the service, he gets, comes out of the pulpit and he stands at the front and says, if any of you would like to be baptized or would like to come to know Jesus, just come forward during this last hymn. And I look around, there's 200 people in the church. I said, why would you ask somebody to do something so embarrassing? That is stupid. And I'm standing there next to Martin. We're in the front row, practically. Sing the first hymn. Halfway through the second hymn, something happened. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I was filled with the Spirit. God just filled me. I knew 100% that Jesus Christ was alive, that he loved me, and that I needed him. I just knew it. I knew it. I could almost see him. And I nudged Martin. I said, Martin, should I go up to the front? And he said, hmm, I don't know. And, uh, and literally to save myself, I couldn't stop myself walking out to the front. So there I am, standing at the front, feeling really embarrassed. These 200 people looking at me. I, I, I just... So then the guy says, oh, hang on a minute. I'll go and get changed. So I'm standing there for a while longer. And he comes back without his galoshes on and his wellies. And he takes me into the vestry. We kneel down. And he leads me through the, the sinner's prayer. Jesus, come into my life. I've been really bad. There's a verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That night, in that five minutes, I became a new creation. I had no idea, I had no scripture for it, I had no theology for it. It was totally unexpected. I think God made a mistake, actually. It was an accident. <laughs> and um, I didn't swear for six months. We were having a swear box, and most of the money in the bottle was mine. I didn't swear for six months. I gave up smoking. I gave up drinking. Guilt and shame, which I never knew I had, just lifted off me. And I felt a little bit light. I felt a huge amount lighter. 
I had feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness, maybe, for years, an inferiority complex, almost, that made me the, the class comedian, got me into a huge amount of trouble. That all left. Just, it just lifted off. Now, let me say, not everything went. I'm still a work in progress, even today, but a huge amount changed, and I knew that Jesus loved me. I walked out of the vestry, and half of these kids are crying. And I'm thinking, what's up with you? You are. Me? Yes, we've been praying for you for three months, ever since Martin met you. And that's how I became a Christian. I joined a non-denominational youth group. I became one of the leaders of the youth group. I stayed in the Baptist church for 12, 18 months. I have to say the Calvinistic theology ground against my spirit, even though I had no idea why. Um, and I joined the house church movement. About four months in, the youth group was meeting one day, and the Holy Spirit came and moved through the group. Everybody there had a real experience of the Holy Spirit, and most of them spoke in tongues. I felt stones. Felt nothing. So I thought, this is interesting. Then they all gathered around me, and they prayed for me for 20 minutes, and I'm still feeling nothing. And I'm getting a bit bored, so I put me out. He's come, he's come, he's come. We can all go home now. I go home feeling nothing. I'm not upset. I just, I just thought, well, that was, that was unusual. And then my, my Christian experience is I, I read about something, I learn about something, I see something, and I want it. I want to experience it. So in the two months after that, I came across tongues. And we used to have an old couple come and talk to our youth group, Bert and Maud Laverick. Bert would speak, and Maud would sit next to him speaking in tongues, praying for him. Oh, that's cool. Fancy that. And then I read other books about the Holy Spirit. So about two months later, we were sitting in a Baptist Bible study. Um, half of them had an awareness of the Spirit. Two, a few of them really knew the stuff. Another half had no clue. And one of the traditions was at the end of the Bible study, you'd pass the Bible round, and when you got the Bible, you could pray. So I got the Bible. I'm sitting there. God, I want the gift of tongues. I'm not passing this Bible on until you give it to me. <laughs> Boom. A stony silence descended on the room. And then Jean Brand, who was my youth pastor, and an amazing, amazing woman, said, Harry, you've got the gift. Just speak it out. I'm sitting there, feeling stones, feeling nothing. Nothing's, nothing's happening. And that went on for about 45 seconds. 45 seconds is a long time when everybody's looking at you and you're sitting there holding a Bible, refusing to let it go. And then Bob said, I th actually think this is for me. I've been praying for this. And Gene said, okay, Bob, you speak in tongues. And away he went in this beautiful language. And I'm thinking, I won't tell you exactly what I was thinking. But I was thinking, that's not fair. As for me, I wanted that. And then Jean got up and she came over and she put her hands on my head and she started praying in her prayer language over me. From deep, deep, deep down within my being, a fountain, and that's the only way I can describe it, of emotion erupted. And I fell hopelessly and totally in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. More than I had loved any other girl. 
I mean, I'm not saying he's a girl. That was a mistake. More than I'd loved anybody. It was just, it was just a transforming, and I, I just, I left the room. I, I didn't leave the room, but you know, I just, it was just so overcoming. And after a, a minute or two minutes, I came present again, and I discovered the tears were rolling down. Now I'm a Scotsman, I don't have tear ducts, but the tears were rolling down my face, and I was praying in this beautiful language. I was saying, dear come, Mayana, dear come, Mayana, I love you, Jesus. And then Jean said, you've got the rest of the language, so it just all came out. That transformed my life again. When the power of the Spirit came upon me, my ministry took off. I mean, I'd, I'd, within a couple of weeks of being born again, I was showing my testimony and seeing people break down and re-giving their life to Jesus. But after I was baptized in the Spirit, it was just so, so much fun. After about four years of really lots of adventures and lots of good teaching and lots of good things, I'd left the Baptist church because I'm not a Baptist. Um, the Friday group disappeared because the leader wanted to get married. The house church disappeared because there were some issues with the guy who ran it and tax and stuff. And so I was left without fellowship. I spent about two months looking for a church and I visited, I don't know, at least one. I, I, and I just couldn't find a home. So I kind of did it myself. And you can't do it yourself. And I very slowly kind of backslid. Not by choice, not because I was rebelling, but just because I couldn't find a home. I couldn't find fellowship. I couldn't find people to identify with. And I got into probably as bad a state as I'd ever been in. It was a pretty dark place. I got involved again with alcohol, with smoking, with a lot of other things which I'm not going to talk about because there's a young man here. Um, and so I'm in that place and I'm feeling, you know, one thing that did, I did know, I, I was going to the off-license one day in America, as you do, because I worked for British Airways, so we got free flights. And I remember driving down this road at about 70 miles an hour, putting the car into slide and coming to a perfect stop in front of the off-license, or the bottle shop as it's called there. And as I did that, I was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit again, despite being in a really bad place. And God said to me, I love you. You're coming back. I thought, oh, that'd be good. <laughs> I want to come back. I just don't know how. Um, so I'm there in this place. And um, David rings up, my best mate, who'd been with me in my conversion. And we'd been really good friends and lots of adventures. And he and his wife rang up and said, Harry, we know you're really good with kids. We're taking a group of kids to Greenbelt. We'd like you to come and help. Now, I love kids. I've, I was, you know, I've always loved kids in youth work. Not crash. I don't do crash, except for Otis. Um, and so I went to Greenbelt. Now, Greenbelt was a Christian music festival about two hours north of London in the field. 5,000 kids would descend upon the place. They would have tents and meetings and teachings and stuff all the time. And here I ended up with my tent and these kids and David and Erica. Uh, and it was fun. The problem was that I really knew the scripture well. 
I was in a bad place, so I'd go along to the seminars and I'd heckle. And I'd <laughs> upset people. Because <laughs> so, that was just the kind of person, you know, wasn't, wasn't good. No. So the, in the evenings, they'd have a rock concert. Or somebody comes sing, we heard you two there. And the, on this one, the final Saturday night, it was Cliff Richards. So, now he's good. Why are you laughing at Cliff Richard? He's good. Um, so we take the kids along. We've got our blanket on the field. I'm sitting there, waiting for Cliff to come up. And there's three fairly attractive girls sitting behind us. No idea who they are. And some of our kids start winding them up. So I went over and introduced myself and apologized. Really long story short, discovered that they lived not more than a kilometer away from where I lived in Ealing. They went to a church I'd never heard of. They said it was the Invisible Church, and I said, oh, that's good, I don't go to church either. And they said, no, no, we go to the Invisible Church. And the Invisible Church was a church started by a South African nightclub owner who was dramatically saved, delivered of drugs and alcohol, and he converted these nightclubs into churches. And because you couldn't see them from the street, they called it the Invisible Church. So I went along to the Invisible Church, and... Um, felt at home, and within a few weeks was totally restored, active in the church, and was that way for many years. The Invisible Church was a street church. We spent a lot of time giving out tracts, doing street evangelism, and that's when I discovered that the grace and favor of God is not upon me as an evangelist. I really suck at it. I did have good success at Hyde Park Corner, at Speaker's Corner. I could get up on a, spo on a soapbox. I could preach the gospel and see people saved. We'd get people coming in, intermingling in the crowd, and good stories. And what I would do, I'd, I'd look around for people having a hard time with their conversation, then I'd go butt in, because that's where I worked best. You give me a room for the non-Christians, and I'll happily preach the gospel and see the Holy Spirit move. But ask me to go do door-to-door, Forget it. I did some work with, um, I was going to say Crossroads. It's not Crossroads, it's Soul Survivor. I used to share an office with Matt Gelding when I was CIO of Pickles, and they invited me to go along in one of their camps. So I got along as a leader. Yes, Newcastle. There's me there. Well, there's 500 kids there as well. They give me 13 kids, and there's a chap from the church army there. Now, this church army guy is an evangelist. He's led three people to Jesus on the way there on the bus. They give him 15 kids, and they give us an assisted housing block, you know, one of these tower blocks, 15, 20 floors or something, and they say, okay, you take your 15 kids around that one, knock on the doors, bring people to Jesus and come back, and you do the same. Me and my kids were through our block in five minutes flat. Literally, not a single door was opened, everyone was slammed, and we ended up at the bottom of this tower block, saying, well, we've got an hour and a half, what do we do now? And we, we actually found some kids loitering at the corner, so we went and chatted to them. Church army chap came back half an hour late. Had been invited to every door they'd knocked on, been given tea, coffee, prayed for people, had a wonderful time. Now, he's an evangelist, that's what he should be doing. So, uh, next day we have to do the same. And I've got my kids, and I'm thinking, oh, this is really awkward. But my, my, I move in spiritual warfare. 
I did a huge amount of deliverance and prayer ministry and healing and stuff like that. So I thought, I know what we'll do. So I took three of my kids, and we went to a park overlooking our apartment block. And we stood there, and we prayed against the principalities and powers and the forces that work in that apartment block and sent the rest of the poor kids into the apartment block. They had an absolute blast. They were invited in. They got to pray with people. They came back really excited. Because I moved where God had called me to move and didn't try to move somewhere else. So we're in... Um, that, that was quite recent. I went to another one, did a healing seminar, and that was fantastic. Um, in the early 1980s, we were, the, the, the Invisible Church morphed into the South Bank Fellowship. I was brought into the eldership. My main responsibilities were preaching, teaching, and counseling, and probably the precursor of prayer ministry. And then we had this series. One, one of our pastors stood up and gave a series on how a Christian could not possibly be affected by a demon. It's just totally unscriptural and not possible. The series lasted three weeks, and um, about two weeks after that, we took the church. We used to go away for a weekend together once a year. We went to a stately home called Fairmont Court, and the guest chief speaker that year was a chap called John Barr. John was a Roman gypsy, very, very spiritually aware, and he came and started delivering people I'd pastored for years from demons. I had to change my theology just a bit, but what I also did was, because I found this so fascinating and interesting, I became John Barr's shadow. He used to come around our church and there is that we moved in quite a lot, and whenever he was around, he would have somebody sitting on his shoulder, not literally sitting on his shoulder, but, you know, next to him. And I would watch what he did. I'd watch how he did it. And I picked up some of his anointing. And then I, st then I just started doing it. And you know what? It worked. It was a bit ugly at first because we were inexperienced and there was a lot of manifestation and arguing with demons and all that stuff. Don't do that anymore. It's not healthy. Um... But it worked. And then we've, I've just grown in that. A few months later, we went to see a chap called Ian Andrews. Ian Andrews was an Anglican vicar who had to leave the Anglican church because he spoke in tongues and healed people. We went down to Guildford Cathedral. Ian spoke. Interestingly enough, he had a terrible, terrible stutter when you had a conversation with him. But as soon as he got into the pulpit, it went. And um, he preached the gospel, and then he got down, and he called people up, and they were healed. And you could see them being healed. And then he called people from the congregation up and had them heal people. I'm going, pick me, pick me. But he didn't. So we're in the car on the way back, and um, there's this noise coming from the back. We're taking a couple of Sid and Caroline down with us. They're one of our home, some of our home group leaders. And I said, what's wrong? And Caroline said... We, spent, we just spent four thousand our life saving on an operation on my back, and it's worse. I'm in huge pain, and she was in constant pain. And I said, great, we'll pray for you when we get back to your house. So we got back to her house, midnight. Now, when Ian Andrews prays with people with backs, he would lift the legs, and if they're different sizes, he'd just command them to come into alignment, and that would heal them. So that, well, that's what he did, that's what I'll do. God has a sense of humor. I picked her legs up, and she's got red and white socks on 
with bands that go round her ankles to make it very, very clear that there's a good centimetre and a half difference in the length of her legs. So I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> no mistake in this if it works. So I pray for her. Nothing happens. And I remember, oh, you said if people wanted to be shorter or taller. So I said, do you want to be shorter or taller? I think she said shorter because her husband was tiny and she was quite tall. And, and I prayed for her again, and her legs came into alignment. And her back pain completely went, and it never came back as long as we knew them. Um, from that point on, I have a hunger to see people physically healed. Um, we had a, a very, very close friend who we mentored and looked after for years. Her name was Lynn. And um, she had something wrong with her knees. I didn't know what it was. And so I'm sitting at home one day, and I suddenly feel God say, go and heal Lynn's knees. I said, okay. Really strong feeling. So I went round to her house and knocked on the door and said, um, I believe God wants, you to, wants to heal your knees. And she said, great. And I said, how would you know they were healed? She said, that's really easy, she said. And she sat on the arm of a chair, she straightened her leg, and the only way she could get it to bend again was to physically break it with her hands. And what had happened at the age of 11 years old, she'd be doing a handstand, and she'd come down on her knees and wrecked them. And there was nothing the doctors could do about it, and that was it. And she would occasionally just be walking down the street and fall over because her knees would heal up. So I well, this is, this is good. Prayed for her. Instantly healed. She could do bunny jumps, she could run, she could do all kinds of things. And that was my second major healing. I had a very same feeling in, about another friend who was deaf. I went round to her place. I was convinced God wanted to heal her and nothing happened. There is a mystery in healing. And it's, it's a lot of fun and exciting and sometimes a little disappointing. I have seriously pursued healing since those days. I spent, I was paid to go around the world. I've done three Bill Johnson and Randy Clark healing schools, not because I'm a slow learner, but because every time you do one, they lay hands on you and impart anointing to you. Um, I don't think we do impartation very well. But, and I had an interesting story. Ian Andrews, who was the first person who led, who taught me healing, and again, when Ian used to come around to our church, I would be, I'd be his shadow. I would watch what he was doing. I would listen to what he was saying. I would pick up his anointing, and that's how I grew in healing. And about 20 years later, Liz phoned me one day at work, and I'd been to Toronto. I went to the Toronto Blessing. That was huge fun. I had to shut my eyes sometimes to keep my sanity, but it was huge fun. And God affected me immensely. I came back and Liz banned me from praying in bed because I would shake so much. How does that fit into what I'm saying? I have no idea. Anyway, about 20 years later, Liz phoned me at work in an open plan office. Now, I, I do sometimes react when the Holy Spirit's around. Open plan office, half a dozen of my workmates sitting around me. And Liz rings and said, there's a healing conference in Minneapolis. It's got Ian Andrews there, Bill Johnson, Randy Clark, Carl Pierce, and the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I jumped, oh! My workmates went, oh! <laughs> to cut a long story short, I went all the way to Minneapolis. I bought around the world tickets. I popped in to see my folks on the way home. And um, 
the con it was a conference, I saw a quadriplegic walk. And it was just an amazing conference. Um, but I didn't get a chance to get hold of Ian Andrews. So I wanted him to lay hands on me. Cause, because he was the first, I thought it would be special if he laid hands on me. So I discovered he's about 70 miles. Got a hire car, so I'm going. Went to this little church in the country. Sit next to a pastor's wife who comes from a funny church. I can't remember what she's called, but it's, it's quite a famous one. And we're chatting, and I tell her why I'm there. She said, all right. And then Ian does the ministry session. He said, come on, then you, you go get prayed for. And I said, no, no, it's all right. He's, he's praying for other people. That's more important. I had my hand, and she dragged me out the front, and she grabbed Ian Andrews and said, you prayed for this guy 20 years ago. He's been healing ever since. He wants some more. And he said, oh, right. Get some people behind him, because he's going to go. He laid hands on me, and I went, big time. And I came back disappointed. I came back disappointed because it didn't increase my ability to heal people, but it gave me an anointing to pray for people, to start praying for people to be healed, and to pray for people to be healed, because that was his ministry. His ministry was starting and getting people to do it, not so much doing it himself, although he did it himself really well. That makes sense. It sounded a bit complicated to me. We came back from Toronto, and a few, two or three months later, we had a church of 300 people. And one Sunday morning, 250 of them left. People we had pastored for years. Now, since then, we have found there were some serious issues in the leadership that we had no knowledge of, and we can understand why it happened now. But at the time, it was totally devastating. It was especially devastating for me because I knew I was in both camps, and I was being torn apart. And slowly, very soon after that, we got a call. We were sitting in the... I was sitting, I was on, my company was going to make me redundant. It was cable and wireless. And I got a call, and it said, you don't know me. How do you fancy doing two years in Australia? And I worked for Cable and Wireless. Cable and Wireless on the 3rd of Optus. I was a senior IT manager there. I was one of the directors. And he, the CI wanted me there. So I looked at Liz and I sat right into the room and I said, Liz, do you fancy a couple of years down under? And she said, yes. She did say yes. Um, I went to see the HR manager, who was a close friend, and she burst out laughing. She said, Harry, there are 400 people on the waiting list to go and work at Optus. You've got no chance. Two hours later, she rang me and said, pack your bags. Three months later, we were here. We arrived in May 95. And because we were a family of four, we got placed on the North Shore rather than Manly or Mossman. We moved into 123 Kissing Point Road, and Phil and Kath Henry lived at 124 Kissing Point Road. We must have been socially unacceptable or something because a month later they flew off to Canada for two years to learn to be pastors. They came back, we met, we had a pool and they didn't, so we became best friends. Phil said, I'm planning to plant a church. I want a big church. I don't want a small church. And I said, that, that suits me. I, I like that. So we, we, we joined the home group, which was out of Dayspring at the time, which was a vineyard just about to leave the vineyard. And we got planted out of there. And we were some of the original people in Northridge Vineyard. And soon after that, we kicked off Set Free. 
Liz and I served on the past. We, we ran a home group which grew to 30 people, and that was unacceptable. It was far too big. So they split the home group and told us, you can't be home group leaders anymore. You've got to come on the pastoral team and look after home group leaders and home groups. So we did that for many years. And then a spirit of stupid came over me, and um, I resigned from an exceptionally well-paid, secure job, being CIO of Pickles Auctions, to run a company, to be the CIO of a company called... Um, it's so bad, it's, I've blocked it out of my mind. Santi Living. They were being given a huge amount of money to build 35,000 houses, two hospitals, and 70 medical centers in East Timor, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. They said, the money's in the bank and we need a CIO. Uh, just the opportunity to do that and to help so many people. And I must have misheard God because I'm sure he said go, and this said go, and you know, the people we talked with said go, and the money was never in the bank, and the job never happened. So I worked for six months for nothing, and I was unemployed for six months, because at the age I was at the time, which was above 40, it was hard to find work. We were getting desperate, because we still had a mortgage, and um, Suddenly somebody, when I was a senior manager at Optus, somebody who worked for me, who worked for IBM, rang me and said, Harry, would you fancy doing a trip to Fiji and a project review? I said, sure, I've got nothing else better to do. So we were at a ridiculously high rate, and I went off to Fiji for two weeks. Wrote the review, found it was really bad, and they invited me to go and fix it. And then I went and lived in Fiji for four and a half years. The deal was I'd come back for a week a month, the problem was that when I came back, the project went backwards. So I ended up, because Fijians and projects just don't go together. So I ended up coming back for a weekend a month, and that was a really hard time. I think in Fiji I missed opportunities, but I did have some wonderful times. Um, my evangelistic ability is relational. So I'm in Fiji, and... Um, I've got an Australian working for me, 30 Fijians, and the Australian is an insurance expert and an interesting chap, atheist. We're good friends with the resort manager at Wananavu, atheist. So we go to Wananavu at least once a month because Suva is a terrible place to spend a weekend in. We're there and we go and visit one of John's friends, Gina and Neil Tikaram. And Neil's a Hindu, and Jean's an ex-Presbyterian. Um, who got very hurt by the Presbyterian church, and their house was destroyed in the cyclone. They had two rooms left. They had a bedroom at one end and a bedroom at the other end. The living room, the kitchen, and everything else was just totally wiped away in the cyclone. They were in the house at the time, sheltering in one of the bedrooms, and were lucky to live through it. So we're sitting, we've had lunch, and we're sitting out in the thing. First time I've met these people, having a glass of wine, and all of a sudden, this argument blows up about Christianity. And they're going at it hammer and tongs. And you're sitting there. I'm not getting involved in this one. <laughs> and after about 10 minutes, John says, Oh, you know Harry's a pastor from Sydney, don't you? Silence. <laughs> and Jean said, Well, Harry, what do you think? And I said, Jean, to me, Christianity is not a religion. It's about relationship. It's about my relationship with Jesus, Father God, and the Holy Spirit, and how he wants to work in my life, and we have a lot of fun together. 
And that's all I said. Conversation started up in a different direction, and on it went. I went home, went back to work. Three weeks later, my phone goes. Hi, Harry, this is Gene Tickerum. We need to talk. Oh, okay. What would you like to talk about? She said, those words you said when you had dinner with us, when you had lunch with us in the, in the garden in the afternoon, have been burning in my heart and going round my mind ever since. We need to talk. And since then, we have been really, we've become really close friends, and we've had lots of conversations about life, about faith, and about so many things, which have been really positive. That's, for me, that's the best way to do evangelism, but don't tell anybody because the evangelists will get upset. Another occasion, um, we used to meet at the Holiday Inn, and again, have a couple of beers and watch the sunset, beautiful sunset, and there'd be a group of us, quite good friends, and... One of us name was Shahana. Shahana was in her late 30s, early 40s, and she was, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, whether it's Muslim or Muslim. Anybody help me? Sorry? Muslim. Totally wrong in both accounts I was. It's Muslim. She was a Muslim, and, and one night we find ourselves there on our own, and we're finding a couple of beers, and she shares about her faith, and I share about my faith. And I'm really glad I'm in my faith and not her faith, because her faith sounded really unpleasant. And, and we've, we've shared, and I've, I've shared a little bit about Set Free and some of the healings that we've seen, and away we go. A couple of weeks later, I get a text message from her. Harry, I'd like to book a healing session with you. Oh, okay. So I texted her back and said, hi, Shan, I would love to pray for you. However, you need to know that I pray in the name of Jesus, and that I, my healing comes through the power of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to offend your faith. So she texts back, that's okay, I'm happy for that. So I said, well, we, we met up, and I discovered that she had a degenerative heart condition. So, oh, this is it, put my hand on her shoulder, prayed in tongues for a couple of minutes, commanded the heart condition to be healed. She started to shake and vibrate as the Holy Spirit came on her, and then she went away. So a few days later, I texted her, I said, How, how's the healing? And she says, I'm not healed. My heart condition's healed, that's great. But I came to you for healing for ME. I've had a business that's going to pot. I'm not, I, I've struggled to get out of bed, for, and I've struggled to get out of bed for six months. And things are just falling apart. And I'm still sick. And I thought, oh, she didn't tell me that. Or at least I didn't pick it up. So, well, come around again. Let's, let's pray for you again. She came around. And I, again, I, I just felt there was an issue in her about unforgiveness because she'd been through a painful divorce. So we met up. I took her through a forgiveness process for her ex-husband, laid hands on her. She started to shake a little bit more violently this time, commanded the condition to cease and to go. She was, and I phoned her three weeks later. She was completely healed. Her business was booming. She just won a contract with the government, and um, she was doing great. Hmm? Yes. I'm sorry. I, I don't have a watch. I do have a watch. I'm lying. Yeah, we'll wind up shortly. Hmm? They've got next week as well. I just want to leave you with one verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Where we ran set free, we had a prophetic painting, and you'd look at it, and there was this road, clouds, and a broken pot. 
you switch the light out and turn an ultraviolet light on and the broken pot became gems and the hand of God appeared out of the cloud. And many times God has said to us, pick up the stones with your name on. Do the works with your name on. Because if I try and pick up die stones, they're too heavy for me. I'll burn out. Grace and favor is not on me in that area. If I try and be an evangelist or, you know, the things that God hasn't called me to, I miss it. If you want a full Christian life and joy in your Christian life, find the niche that God has created for you and pick up those stones. Thank you very much. Bless you. Interesting that it's just started to gently rain, don't you think? Yes. It's always, you know, despite the weather, despite the temperature and the rain and the tailgaters, we're actually enjoying our time in Victoria. It's been nice getting to know some of you guys. And yeah, that was great, on. Harry. So many layers. I think um, it would be great for us to finish. We talked about impartation. Yes. Is that something that maybe we could do today? Just the, sure. The things that God's given you yeah. that you would also just be able to release to us. Yeah, yeah. Would you like that, church? Let's stand up. You've been sitting for a while. If you just want to stretch a bit. And what happens here is the things that God shares with others, as we heard in Harry's story, that it, we can receive that. And so if you would like that, we're going to get Harry to pray for that. And next week, we're going to hear more about what is this ministry called Set Free that God is doing. That'll be part of next week. And then the lunch. Thank you, Harry. Shandy and Dad at a Bako, Kula Mamakoya, Kiaya Babasu, Halamamande, Kima Mamasuya and Dad at a Bakoya, Kikiaya Mamande and Day, Kahala Babasuya and Dad at a Bakula Mamandai, Kaya Mamamakoya and Dad at a Bakushi, Kikiaya Mamamasu, Halamamandai. Father God, right now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I release healing in this room. And I just holy, ask Holy Spirit that you start us at that end of the room and that you just move through, touching people who are hurt and broken, touching people in physical pain. I command back pain to go now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just moving through. Just touching people so deeply. New hope, new vision. Father, some people have lost their dreams and they've lost their visions and they've got tied up in the day-to-day -day stuff. I just ask, Lord, for renewed vision for those people. Renewed vision. Renewed hope. And Lord, for just an impartation of your grace now and your love and your... Realizing of your kindness, some people have struggled with you not being kind and being judgmental. That's not you. Holy Spirit, just ask for a revelation of the real fatherhood of God in people's hearts now. And Father, I just ask that people would find what you've called them to, they'd find the works that you've prepared for them, and that they would pick up those works and run with them with both hands and both feet and all their life. And they would just embrace what you have in their lives. We just thank you for this time, Lord. 
We thank you. We just, also, I just ask for joy, Lord, that you would just pour out joy, pour out joy and hope in this congregation now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.